Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK uh, Studios of Deep State Radio, where I am joined by Georgetown University's Rosa Brooks and the Plowshare Fund's Joe Serencioni, and way far away on a little <laughs> island floating off the coast of Europe um, is the n- number one fan of the St. Louis Cardinals, Corey Shockey. That is indeed me. I am a desperate Cardinals fan. You know, when I was a boy, I think we may have discussed this once, but I would go to the Mets games. But my favorite team was the Cardinals. And I vividly Yay. remember. What? I you remember. Well. Wow. And judgment from the very start, David. Exactly. Wait a minute. Corey, I, you're from California. How are you a Cardinals fan anyway? I am a Cardinals fan because I grew up an Oakland A's fan. And when I went east to go to graduate school, I could not bear to support any team in the American League East as an A's fan. Uh, Washington didn't have a team of its own. And I was a poor graduate student. And... <laughs> I could actually get Cardinals games on the radio. Wow. Wow, the radio. What is that? <laughs> I remember that. I remember it's listening to, listening to ball games on the radio. Oh. And uh, Tony La Russa, the, the former A's skipper, had gone to St. Louis, and he took with him the magnificent Dave Duncan, pitching coach, who could ring one good season out of any washed-up wreck. And I except except Rick Ankiel, except Rick <laughs> Ankiel, who had to become an outfielder in order to have exactly. it. Exactly, that's exactly right, David. Bravo for your detailed knowledge of Cardinals disasters. Yeah, well, I was a when I was a kid, it was I, it was Bob Gibson. That was that was <gasps> you know that Bob was Bob Gibson. Were, those were the days, right? So th- those were the days um, back when America led the world and uh, there was an international system and uh, there was sort of mutual respect for that system in both parties in the United States. And in fact, that went on for 75-ish years. In other words, we went and we built this kind of international system and we built institutions, the idea behind institutions being to institutionalize our ideas and to make them so they endured from leader to leader, uh, regime to regime around the world, so that there would be some permanence to this structure, which we felt was so important to global stability. And so what's happened in the past year and a half is that we've discovered that what we thought was permanent is actually not only much less permanent than we thought, but that things could change really on a dime 
and there was a surprising fragility to it. And of course, much of this was in the U.S. There was Brexit and there were some other things, but Donald Trump pulling out of trade agreements, pulling out of the world trading system, moving from the free trade stance that's been the U.S. policy since the 1930s to uh, a protectionist uh, uh, nationalist stance, which has been discredited since back then, um, uh, is, a, is a reversal there. Uh, turning on NATO, embracing Russia, uh, embracing dictators, turning on democracy, pulling out of UN organizations. He actually now, and this is one of the great, you know, there's a lot of bad news out there, but in the great, you know, good news on the trade front, apparently, according to Axios, his team put together a bill to pull out of the WTO um, called the Free and Reciprocal Trade Act, the FART Act. Best That's true. <laughs> That's true. It's true. No. The, this administration has come out in favor of the FART Act. They're taking a strong pro-FART <laughs> position. Um, but all of this has happened in 18 months. Well, as we were discussing on our last show, and as Rosa, who bears the thorny crown of entropy for a good reason, points out, a lot of us who harbor notions that Trump may be gone may be disappointed. A lot of us that harbor notions that the Democrats win in November may be disappointed. It's kind of a coin toss right now. And it could be that come January or come the November, you know, midnight on Election Day, Trump's going to get a message that everything he's doing is great, that he has plenty of support that he should keep doing what he's doing, that separating families is good, that attacking NATO is wow. good, that embracing Russia is good, that lying to the American people is good, that ethics don't matter, that international institutions don't matter, and he could keep doing it, and he could win another term of office. We've seen what's happened in the past year and a half. And so the question that I would like to pose to all three of you to start this, and I would like to pose this to you first, Corey, is where will we be in six and a half years of Trump? Oh, I think it's six and a half years of Trump. The uh, international order that the United States built out of the ashes of World War II that was designed to create common security for countries that shared our value and that would share the burdens that voluntarily limited American power through rules and institutions and cooperation agreements will be, would be so badly damaged. Um, and the judgment of the American people in returning Donald Trump to the presidency after what we have seen that he is doing to our country, I, I think it, it would take at least a generation to restore confidence in the United States. I think our security guarantees would have collapsed with concomitant acceleration of nuclear weapons proliferation and regional wars. Uh, and I think the American economy, which has benefited so spectacularly from the rule of law, from a predictable environment of regulation and, and central bank behavior, would be 
so much more volatile than we have thought about it being, that it would be almost unrecognizable. Oh, and by the way, we would then be calling, historians would call this, this period the inner war years. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Joe, <laughs> close your eyes. Beat that. And uh, imagine. I think it might be a little worse. I think American democracy can survive four years of Donald Trump. I'm not so sure about eight. I'm not so sure about it, particularly the way you phrase it. The encouragement that he would get from a, a positive result in this November election and then two years hence, it would just encourage him to go all out. And you would, I think you would have this scenario that Corey just described, plus the domestic consequences of this, which, which would be a, a, a decline, maybe even a collapse of some fundamental civil rights and some fundamental freedoms. And most of all, you know, you'd, you'd have the collapse of one of the great democratic, but a small d, institutions in American life, the Republican Party. I mean, this is, this is in some ways worse than what Donald Trump is doing, is what That's the party nice point. is what, I, the, what the party is doing. Go ahead. I was just going to absolutely endorse everything Joe's just said. I mean, this, this, this is the, one of the real great tragedies. I mean, this is a Republican Party that, you know, I historically have disagreed with, but have respected, respected. And the leadership is absolutely kowtowing to the, the emperor president, to Donald Trump. And there's, so, there's no evidence that they're going to recover their soul as long as Donald Trump is, is still president. Rosa. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think we are moving steadily in the direction of, of Russia, of Putin's Russia, uh-huh. you know, becoming more and more of a, a sort of corrupt thugocracy. And and people like us may very well be fine, right, in eight years yes. or, or in 20 years. Um, there are plenty of rich, fat, happy Russians under Putin who have you know, sold out on any principles they ever had and are willing to kowtow and are willing to avoid... Did you just engage- call me fat? Not you. <laughs> you no, 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 no. Not you, Corey. Um, 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 Do my pants make... <laughs> Never mind. I just, <laughs> the lighting is... How do I look in, how do I look in this shirt? Does this national destruction make me look wide? <laughs> <laughs> this national destruction will make us all look fat, guys. Yeah. No, but I mean, I mean, this, this is, this is. That would probably do it, by the way. <laughs> well, if there was a headline saying Trump will make you look like fat. you weigh ten pounds more, we're going to be eating he's a lot. Out. We're going to be eating a lot of ice cream, <laughs> a lot of pies. Well, actually, well, staying inside a lot. In fact, it's the other way around, right? I mean, obesity is a class issue in this country, oh. and Trump's base uh-huh. are the more obese. You know that that correlates pretty nicely with Trump's support base. <laughs> it correlates with lack of education. It correlates with with lack of opportunities and all you know anyway but that's another story no it um, is because but, hillary clinton you're, you're saying should have called them the fatties it, <laughs> instead of the way. deplorables <laughs> but 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 this is a diversion but no i mean i mean this is the question yes. right of the next few years yes. you know is is whether america is in fact a democracy any longer in any meaningful sense we've we've had we've had two recent elections where the uh, winner of the popular vote did not assume the presidency we have we have a system that initially by constitutional design overprivileges uh, uh, sparsely populated rural states relative to the urban areas where most Americans now live uh, you know two 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 votes per two senators per state um, which which concentrates power in the less 
dense parts of the country um, and the small states. Um, we have a parties, the Democratic and the Republican Party, which colluded with greater success by and large on the part of the Republican Party in gerrymandering electoral districts to dilute the voting power of many mm -hmm. Americans. Mm -hmm. We already have a system in which the the will of the people, such as it is, to the extent that we believe that we can measure that through relatively sophisticated polling and so forth, the will of the people is consistently already not reflected in electoral outcomes. All of the signs point to that getting worse. The the that is what the war is over right now. You know that there is a there is a war going on that is not by and large a war of bombs and guns, but it's a war for for the future of America's democratic institutions. And if we lose that war, which we may very well, then we go in the direction of Putin's Russia. And those of us who are lucky and are clever at engaging in political compromise and flattery and obsequiousness and being non-threatening to the ruling kleptocrats yes. will be fine. I'm screwed. Um, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, David. You, you will know, no longer be allowed in on this podcast. <laughs> um, you know, the rest of us are, are either very, very poor and desperate or, or we're in prison and political repression increases. And, and that, that's, what, that's the future that we're moving towards. Just quickly, the Supreme Court? It, yeah, yeah. Right? Right. If you're worried about one more arch-conservative yeah. justice, how, how would you feel about four? No, I mean, I mean... Just, Six and a half years from now, Breyer and Ginsburg, are, they're gone. Yeah, they're gone. Across, across, I mean, I think we have and, seen on almost every front a steady weakening of the kinds of institutions that had some ability to be counterbalances to sort of pure kleptocracy at the top. And, um, you know, or at least, you know, you know the, I mean, if I can get really wonky, right, talk about the sort of Madisonian notion that, uh, that, that humans are prone to form self-serving factions, but that if you could at least have enough factions that counterbalance yes. one another, that no single faction could capture the machinery right. of the state and serve its own interests permanently. I, I think what we're seeing, you know, even even if you don't like unions, uh, the recent Supreme Court decision, for instance, further weakening the role of public sector unions, what we tend to see is that we're seeing that power is all getting tilted towards a smaller and smaller number of actors. Uh, and they're going to like this. Um, well, but, you know, Corey, just to pick up on this, and, and because I know you'll enjoy doing this, let's follow up on the Madison theme, of, <laughs> but a different Federalist paper. Federalist number 10. Um, and, Wait a and, minute. And let's turn to... The, the, his concern about tyranny of the majority, because essentially what he did not write about was the possibility of tyranny of the minority or tyranny well, he, of the pseudo-majority. No, he worried about those two. He, but, he, but, but, but this was is, all this on the assigned reading? I yeah. missed all this. <laughs> but this, this, is, this, is where, this is where we end up. And he worried a lot about demagogic political leaders. Yes, he did. Uh -huh. But, but what, I, what I'm getting at is that urbanization is actually a disabling political trend in the United States. The uh -huh. more you go right. to a highly concentrated population, the more you dilute your the more you dilute your political influence. And the more you increase the influence of the old McDonaldsocracy out there, you know, which so is I, to say the farmers and the people sort of So I should have stayed I on that commune. I should have stayed on the commune. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you have a commune? Well I went to Woodstock 
Uh, I really did. And, uh, you know, I Dude, was on... Next uh, year's the 50th anniversary. I, I, I know. So take, I, You may want to take a little swig of oxygen gosh, there. the birthday we, of the <laughs> NPT and almost the birthday of Woodstock it's, in it's, one it's, episode. It's, it's been a dramatic 50 years. So I, sh- I should have stayed out there. I should have stayed, stayed out in the stayed farmland. in that field, <laughs> exactly. you would have more power than coming to a city. Okay, Corey, you were going to say something. Oh, uh, I was going to say that... Um, you know, I, I'm i not entirely comfortable with the arguments that uh, the Electoral College is inherently unfair because it prejudices rural over, um, rural over urban because you have the balance in other ways in the House uh, of representatives. And I just don't see how we have a practical discussion about changing that. Um, other than uh, once the country becomes populated enough that rural areas are also suburban or urban, then we. But, what, but why? That. Why are we giving? <laughs> Take a while. <laughs> why are we giving acreage a vote? <laughs> you know, I mean, why are we giving space a vote in our in our in our Congress? Uh, because it was important to be able to give sparsely populated areas also weight in Congress? Why? I mean, it was not. It was The reason was because it was important to somehow calculate in this slaves and to provide a balance between the slave states and the more urban industrializing states. Uh, and it has been sort of equitable and necessary in the United States, you know, no, not you know, also not for the past hundred and fifty years. So I, I mean, don't know, David. I, I don't think the people of Wyoming agree to that, or would agree to agree to the description that the only reason um, to have the balance on this is for slave owning. But 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 the well, they may not agree with, agree with it. They may not agree with it, the, but it's true. Yeah, they weren't even there. Why? We why does if somebody in Wyoming get more seats yeah. in the U.S. Senate yeah. than you know my daughters who live in Brooklyn or Washington D.C. for that matter, or Washington, which gets nothing, nothing, so, with a larger population. I mean, so I am not a constitutional lawyer nor an expert on the. If only we had one. You know? so I will <laughs> Can we call? <laughs> say go right ahead, but but I don't know what I can add to it other than to say I don't share the perspective. Well. So I'm. So, I'm, so Rosa wants to add something, but she also wants to crawl under the she, desk. No, here, so she's oh, she's furiously flipping <laughs> through I'm, her I'm volumes of law books that I want to read to you. And of course, at this crucial moment, I hope it's from Judge Learned Hand. I always no, it like is not from, from Judge Learned Hand. <laughs> Um, but at this crucial moment, um, the Wi-Fi or whatever is is failing me here, and I'm not being able to pop it up. But but no, I I think that there there are a couple of different issues here that we're, we're sort of smushing all together. You know that that I I think that the the framers of the Constitution had a very legitimate and still really important today concern about minorities of all kinds yes. being tyrannized by the majority, and that. Any minority, and I think, and we, I think today we should continue to share that concern. And I think that saying that, hey, look, a minority of Americans now live in sparsely populated rural areas, and we need to have some counterbalance 
to urban majorities so that their concerns don't just get obliterated in the electoral process. That seems totally right to me. You know, I think the question the question is not should we care about Wyoming? Of course we should care about Wyoming. The question is how much weight does Wyoming have in setting rules that affect the majority? You know, while at the same time, you know, we, we want to give them we, we want to protect them from having us urbanites obliterate their concerns, but we also want need to protect the majority from the tyranny of the minority and that getting that balance right is the challenge. But wouldn't you and, say the balance is out of whack? At I do the think the balance is out of whack at the moment. Um, and I and I think that there are probably much better ways to ensure that we do adequately protect the rights of rural minorities than, than our current system. But I also think, I mean, the, I think the broader constitutional question as ever is uh, how much should we care about original intent if it no longer seems relevant to, to modern needs, modern norms? And I don't think we answer any – I don't think it's actually a particularly relevant or interesting thing to say, well, the framers wanted such and such. Mm. I, you know, and I'll read you a quote from uh, one of my Georgetown colleagues, um, Mike Seidman, uh, who's a terrifically smart guy. Uh, and so bear with me. I found it. Uh, So Mike wrote in a 2012 New York Times op-ed, he wrote, Our obsession with the Constitution has saddled us with a dysfunctional political system, kept us from debating the merits of divisive issues, and inflamed our public discourse. Instead of arguing about what is to be done, we argue about what James Madison might have wanted done 225 (laughs) years ago. As someone who has taught constitutional law for almost 40 years, I am ashamed that it took me so long to see how bizarre all this is. Imagine that after careful study, a U.S. government official, say the president or one of the party leaders in Congress, reaches a considered judgment that a particular course of action is best for the country. Suddenly, someone bursts into the room with new information. A group of white property men who have been dead for two centuries, knew nothing about our current situation, acted illegally under existing law, and thought it was fine to own slaves, might have disagreed with this course of action. Is it even remotely rational that this modern official should change of her, his or her mind because of this? This divination, and I think that that's right. You know, yeah. I think that I think that we should care about what the founders thought to the extent, and only to the extent that it still seems relevant to current political realities and needs and technologies. But just saying, well, yeah, but the framers set this up because they cared about X or Y. You know, that 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 can't be a trump card. It shouldn't be a trump card for anything. You know, the answer is yes, but is that going to destroy us today? You know, if the answer is that's going to destroy us today, then we need to think about yes. fixing it. So, so I, I don't disagree with you in principle. Corey, I think I think absolutely we have to care about Wyoming. You know, Wyoming Wyoming deserves to be taken very very seriously. Wyoming deserves to get to say, hey, yes, guys, I get that it's like that in New York or Washington or Chicago, but here we have a different set of considerations and concerns, and that they they deserve to be listened to. They deserve, you know, in in the European context, this is known as the oh boy, this is going to be this is going to be just good for our international and European law nerds called the margin of appreciation for local cultural variance in, in European law. Um, you know, they deserve a margin of appreciation that said people in Wyoming are not exactly the same as people in New York. They have different needs, and that's okay that they can set things up a little bit differently. But the, you know, it's it's the flip side that I do think we have right now. It's not strictly rural, urban, although that's a big piece of it. You know, it's, it's also uh, just population density. It's also uh, more, more differences in local economies, demographics, uh, 
uh, education levels, et cetera, you know, that not having the minority have tyranny over the majority is, is the other concern. Well, right. And you don't want a situation where the people of Wyoming get to say, we're going to pick the president. And if you live in a city, you're going to have less of a vote. And and there's, you know, going too far in the other way. But, Corey, let's just go back and sort of get out of this uh, this particular dim- dimension of the conversation to the original point, which is we've seen how Trump behaves six and a half years from now. If he believes it's in his benefit um, to deepen ah. these divisions, he's likely to play to that. And a 7-2 Supreme Court which is already making some judgments and gerrymandering, for example, that are a little disturbing, um, uh, could take us deeper into this. In other words, he could increase, theoretically, uh, or would, given that he's Trump's, uh, seem likely to try to increase some of the inequities that would preserve or protect him, particularly if the day after he leaves office, he's prosecutable. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Yeah. Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think it's been clear from his inauguration speech that that's what he was going to do. I I don't think we should be under any illusions that that the president and the people around him are using his office to make money to to. to try and turn Americans against each other, to corrode the norms of constitutional restraint. And that's been clear all along. And I, and I think that we, we've had some conversations on this podcast in the past about the importance of, of also having the after Trump conversation. You know, what if Trump doesn't win in 2020? Trump goes oh, away. Yes. Um, you know, what what where are we then? What do we do next? What do we do the day after uh, January 20, whatever it is, in, in, in 2021. Um, and, and I think that the biggest mistake we can make, I, th- I, think that, I think that the best case scenario is that Trump doesn't get reelected and some person of either party who is more committed to these historic norms that relate to democratic institutions is elected and the rule of law. But, but that if it will be so tempting for us, you know, on that day in January when whoever the next person is is inaugurated to kind of say, oh, good, you know, we solved that problem. We, you know, the system self-corrected. We took care of that. And I think that would be the most dangerous thing because I think what Trump has revealed is that our system of checks and balances is in fact far weaker than we thought, far less stable than we thought. The state is much more easily captured than we thought. And that what we're going to need to be, what we need to be thinking about now and, and doing starting now is is not just assuming this is about this one guy but but thinking about you know what do we need to do in terms of our laws in terms of our institutions to get back to a place where it's much much harder for one jerk to capture the state like this well you know, but joe you know i mean one of the things that strikes me about this is that this president is not like other presidents mm-hmm. for the reason that i just noted which is a shift in the government could be an existential threat to him and an existential threat to a lot of the people who served around him, whether it's Wilbur Ross shorting this or whether it's, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, his family and their ethical violations or whether it's you know, others, yeah. you know, Pruitt or, or Zinke or others who have, you know, uh, uh, colluded or, or, or conspired with the Russians. 
And that for that reason, the risk of a peaceful transfer of power yes. to Donald Trump is much higher than it will have been to any preceding administration or president. Right. So you might be faced with the possibility that, that it's even worse than what Rosa just described, which is pretty dystopian. You know, the, but that, that, the, that Trump doesn't accept the outcome of the presidency. And you saw him laying the groundwork on the, for this when he thought he was going to lose in the, in the last election. And that's when he didn't have state power. And now he does. He has so many instruments available to him. And that would be especially true if he thought that after four years of accumulating uh, uh, money, wealth, uh, increasing his family's uh, in net value, that that was, that was in danger by criminal charges, uh, lawsuits, et cetera, that he could stay, that his whole entire future, his dynasty, his family was at risk by the loss, then he might refuse to accept the results of the, of the election. And there would be somewhere between a quarter and a third of the population in the United States that might agree with him. So you, you could have a contested inauguration. You could have, you could have massive demonstrations uh, against the election results. This I take this very seriously. This man might not go quietly into the night. So that's pretty dystopian. We have a few minutes left here. Corey, I want to shift our focus in the way that you know we do here in, in, in Deep State Radio as we look to the rest of the world. After six and a half more years of Trump, what do you think the geopolitical landscape is outside the United States? Uh, I think... Uh that countries that formerly were American treaty allies will be desperately hope, trying to band together in the hope that middle powers can be strong enough to sustain the liberal order, the kind of cooperation that we saw between Japan, Australia, and Canada to keep the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership afloat when the U.S. withdrew from it. Uh, we will see America's friends passing legislation and creating payments mechanisms that skirt the dollar zone uh, as Europeans have contemplated over the American violation of the Iran nuclear agreement and as China and Iran, not American friends, but, but working to evade the dollar zone in setting up uh, Petro One counts, accounts. Uh, I think we will see uh, countries that are on Russia's periphery a lot more fearful, exposed, vulnerable, and making bad security and domestic political choices because of the pressure. I think we will see China owning the South China Sea and forcing uh, smaller countries on its periphery into the same kind of trap that Russia will have forced countries on its periphery. And I think we will see the collapse of North America as a platform for trade, commerce, mutual investment, uh, mutually beneficial immigration, uh, and amity. Uh, is that enough? Wow. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's a that's plenty. But let's let's give Joe and Rosa a chance to look at the geopolitical landscape a little bit post eight years of Donald Trump. 
Oh. Joe. Uh, well, I, I think Corey's really gone down the checklist and hit uh, almost everything. Let me just deepen a little bit. So, for example, you could probably see the um, the dissolution of the South Korea-U.S. Uh, alliance, and you might be looking at some kind of confederated state on the Korean peninsula. And I, just the one point on, on Asia, no question about it, This would, the, the clear winner in this whole scenario would be China. I mean, this really removes some, some of the major barriers to China's rise. And in, 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 well, you know better than I do, David, in all the economic realms entirely, because China is, is not, never one to not take advantage of an opportunity presented to it. Well, and, and after it, all, by 2024, China is uncontestedly yeah. the largest economy in the world. Whether we do this or not. And they're setting up their alternative international structures as as America unilaterally disassembles its. I mean, that's the basic core global you know, change that will be going on. Will, will, where will Russia be? Will Putin be a winner in this? Well, he'll be, he'll be a winner, but nothing compared to where China's going to be. Well, I also think, Rosa, there's a subtle thing that you might want to comment on or you can add something else to really it. I don't really like subtle things. No, no, I, I realize that. But, <laughs> but I keep trying to, you know, up your game here. But, but, but picking up on what Corey said, that in terms of uh, the changes, they're, they're, they're also qualitative changes, right? So China, a couple day, days ago, actually, you know, followed when, you know, the, the Germans condemned the U.S. on trade and the Canadians condemned the U.S. in trade. China said, well, it's up to those of us who, you know, believe in, you know, free uh, trade uh, to to lead the way. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, first, I mean, we can talk about, you know, the, you know, China's trade regimes. But but th- but this we know. If China leads the discussion of the international trade order instead of the U.S. leading the discussion, or if China leads the discussion in terms of international political norms, or if China leads the discussion in terms of uh, uh, how we respond to human rights or terrorism or other kinds of issues, it's going to be qualitatively different from if we do. And I think that the qualitative changes, quite apart from structural changes, might also be you know a a big deal yeah i mean but it's hard to know how any of it plays out and all i really can add to what joe and Corey have already said is is a little dose of my my usual doom and gloom i think that i think that we americans um are probably more than in most other countries not more than in all but certainly more than in most other countries we are brought up and imbued with the deep belief in in two related notions, uh, both of which are wrong. One, which is that we are special and that we are better mm-hmm. than everybody else because we're just sort of more virtuous than everybody else, um, and we have you know we have better values. We're just better people. The world would be better if everybody was more like us. And the other the other illusion is that things in the world will always get better for us and, you know, that we will perpetually be pursuing happiness and getting closer and closer, you know, asymptotically to, to happiness. And, and that those two myths are based on some, you know, lucky historical accidents, you know, things that kind of broke our way, um, that, that we have had a kind of 
you know, for over, you know, since the Civil War, certainly a kind of steady, hey, things are getting better and better. And not, you know, there are little bumps in the road, so on. But 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 for instance, the two world wars that were catastrophic mm-hmm. for Europe were not catastrophic for us. They were great for us. You know, yes, people died, but relative to our population size, it was not that many. It was not devastating to us. You know, there were huge engines for our economy. They were they were led to the U.S. emerging as a global superpower. Um, you know, the world has been pretty good. Yeah, um, and it allowed us to write the new rules. It allowed us to write the new rules, and we we have this illusion that that is, you know, I, I and I talk to people all the time, both Democrats and Republicans, you know, who kind of say, oh, well, yeah, you know, there are all these dangerous things are kind of bad right now. It's kind of scary, but no, things will get better. You know, Mm. this will self-correct that we have a deep belief that things, things will somehow self-correct and everything will be fine for us. And, and that's a good thing, both for us and for everybody else, because it is, it is, you know, patently true that what is good for America is good for the world, what is good for Americans is good for the world. I, I think neither is true. You know, I, I think that they're and I think the Europeans know this more have this in their know this in their bones much more than Americans do, that things can always break down and they can break down more catastrophically and more quickly than you could ever imagine. Um, we don't we don't know that. We don't believe that. They get that. Um, and 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 that, I, I you know, the vision that you paint um David, in which there is, you know, China becomes the global leader, uh, making making pious pronouncements about free trade and human rights. Is it qualitatively different? Yeah, sure, because China's a very different culture than ours. Does it end up being worse, you know, 100 years down the road for the majority of human beings? I don't know. You know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I'm, I am quite sure that the you know the Pax Americana has 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 clearly not been uniformly good for everybody. You know that the 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 benefits of the Pax Americana have been very unevenly distributed, and the lion's share of those benefits have accrued, in fact, to us. I I, I agree with you, but you realize you're saying all this on uh, July Fourth week. <laughs> um, where we're Happy Fourth of July! God yeah. damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Corey, I want to give you the last word this time. Um, and no, because so lift lift us up I here. Want to reclaim the tiara of optimism. Thank you. It is true that the United States benefited um, very handsomely from the international order that we built after World War II. But the genius of the order is that we we weren't the only people who benefited. And I I think I could even make a pretty good case that we didn't benefit disproportionately compared to the benefits that, say, Germany and Japan received as as the vanquished powers of World War II being allowed to participate as equal participants with American security guarantees and included in a globalizing economy on equal terms. The great thing about American power that honestly surprised me to realize when I was writing my book on hegemonic transitions is that the beautiful thing about America as a hegemonic power is that we, up until recently, became more liberal as we became more powerful. That's what made the international order sustainable at a cost really inexpensive to the American public across 70 years. Um, And that the president is toying with at all of our peril now. 
So happy July 4th, everybody. <laughs> We're having fireworks after this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> right. Those sparks you see are rising above the smoldering ruins of America. Much. <laughs> well, all the same, I just want you all to know that I will be out there at the 4th of July parade here in Washington, D.C., keeping our nation's capital safe oh, in my, in in my your... persona as, as Washington, D.C. Reserve Police Officer. Oh, yeah, right. there was, I saw, so I saw on Twitter safe. somebody speculating as to whether you... Rode around in a crown vet. We do not. <laughs> so I want to make my small, modest contribution. Nothing nearly as important as what Rosa is doing for us all on the 4th of July. But I want to remind you of a magnificent reflection by Mark Twain, that great American that seems appropriate to me for the 4th of July. Here it is. I am said to be a revolutionist in my sympathies by birth by breeding, and by principle. I am always on the side of the revolutionists because there never was a revolution unless there were some oppressive and intolerable conditions against which to revolute. There you go, folks. Words there to live go. by. Words, words to live by. So when Rosa, when Corey takes to the streets <laughs> on July Fourth, and Rosa is there on the other side of the barricades, Barricade. trying to suppress her, um, you'll say. But don't worry, I will respect your civil rights as we do here in Washington D.C. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She will not say, "Sit on the curb while I tase you." Right. As they as they do elsewhere in the United States. Um, in any event. Uh, enjoy the holiday, folks, or actually this will air probably the day after, but it's a holiday week, so enjoy the holiday week, and we'll be back next week. Um, you know, based on this show, I'm not sure <laughs> for how much longer we'll be back, um, but we'll be there as long as we possibly can be to, in Corey and Mark Twain's words, revolute. <laughs> Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.